There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just a warning, there is reference to pregnancy loss and infertility in this episode, so please take care whilst listening. Hello and welcome to The Midpoint with me, Gabby Logan. TV presenter, journalist and podcaster Anna Richardson is my guest today. Anna is known for excelling at a certain brand of broadcasting, the frank, unflinching kind which take on taboos, shows like Naked Attraction, Love Bites and The Sex Education Show. Anna is also the co-founder of Mindbox, an online therapy centre that specialises in supporting people struggling with stress and anxiety. And this inspired her new podcast, It Can't Just Be Me, which bears her hallmark warmth and candour. Wonderful beauty guru and regular presenter on this morning, Nadine Baggett is also back with us to talk about what our midlife skin really needs. So without further ado, let's meet Anna. Anna Richardson, thank you so much for joining us on The Midpoint. Look at you, it's the best fringe on television. Oh, well, I mean, between me, Claudia and Davina, I think we've got fringes covered. (laughs) Somebody once said on what used to be Twitter, Anna Richardson, Davina McCall and Claudia Winkerman, same person, different font. And I kind of thought, (laughs) yeah, we we, we kind of of borrowed the same wig. No, your hair's amazing. And uh, we'll get to all things aesthetic, I think, a little bit later on, because our expert coming on later is Nadine Baggett. And we have definitely chatted hair before, but yours is looking luscious. But I want to read you something. I'm going to get my glasses for this one. A little quote. I hope this is from you, because I, I read online that you said this. There's something wonderful about this stage of life. When you come through menopause, it's like you're the wise woman of the village. It opens the door to the second half of your life, a life of freedom, self-knowledge, purpose, and a life no longer worrying about fertility. Do you remember saying that? Do you know what? I do. And I I think it wasn't that long ago because obviously as as a menopausal woman, and you and I have discussed this, um, there is something very challenging about midlife. So I was looking for the positive in Mm. it in in terms of menopause and no longer having our fertility. Um, But I absolutely stand by those words. Yeah, I do feel that. And it struck me as well, the last bit, a life no longer worrying about fertility, because you've been very open about that. And you kind of discovered your own fertility issues working on a TV show, didn't you? And, And I feel like you've had a rough ride with hormones in your life. Do you know, I have. It's been very, very difficult for me. I mean, certainly as a teenager, my periods were were, were very challenging. So I've got a lot of those sort of fertility issues in terms of emotional Mm. response to to my hormones. So my my periods were challenging as a teenager. Um, I had an ectopic pregnancy when I was a student, which nearly killed me. And so as a result of that, I became really terrified of pregnancy. Um, and I think that's probably why I've never had my kids, which is which is a bit of a regret of mine. But then I discovered on TV when I was doing a show for Channel 4, there was I thinking in my mid to late 30s, oh, I've got, you know, I've got thousands, millions of eggs, millions of, I'm, I'm, no, no problem with my fertility. And then I discovered on air that actually I, it was practically impossible for me to have kids and that I'd completely shot my fertility. So it's, it has been quite 
quite a rough ride in terms of, do I want kids? Did I want kids? Oh, and now I can't have kids. Mm. I've got a very, very um, strange relationship with my fertility and regret around that. So when you get to the point in your life when everybody is in the same situation, they're no longer able to have children because they get to the point where your body doesn't, you know, doesn't produce eggs anymore. And that is called the menopause. Does it feel like, okay, now, now I'm kind of in the place where we're all the same now? Because it's hard, isn't it? When you, because I have my own fertility issues. It's hard when you feel like somehow you're not, you're not matching up at the right time to people's expectations. And, you know, as women, we're, we're given all different kinds of hands, aren't we? Dealt different hands to work with. And now we're all the same in a way, you know? Yes, and I mean, you're absolutely right to say the menopause is an equaliser for sure. And, you know, I, I have endless conversations with my girlfriends about how many pumps of oestrogen are you on? Oh, what, have you tried the pessaries yet? For the project, blah, 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 blah. So it is an equaliser, but at the, same po- at the same time, motherhood isn't and fertility isn't a, an equaliser in a way. So I, I was at a, a party recently um, with a lot of kind of local mums and dads and I still felt acutely aware of the fact that I was the only person in there that didn't have children mm. and that all of these friends of mine were talking about their kids leaving to go to uni or they're now doing work experience with so-and-so and you are still that woman in the corner going, well, I haven't got the kids to compare with you about this. We have, I haven't got the, the school mm. anecdotes. But then somebody very kindly stepped in when I was sort of chatting about this at the party and said, yeah, but you know what, you know, back in the day, and maybe this this goes back to um, that quote you just mentioned a second ago about being the wise woman. This woman who was a psychotherapist said, yeah, well, back in the day, you would have been the woman in the village that everybody would have wanted to have talked to because you would have had the wisdom. It's almost like being, you know, the shaman or, or, or the witch of the village, that childless person that actually has the knowledge. So it was quite interesting to be seen. And do you feel like that? Do you feel like that, that it's given you an insight and some some experiences and, and a prism through which other people don't see life and society? Yeah, absolutely. Because I suppose when you don't have children, you take the road less travelled in a way. And it, it is quite a lonely road. It's a road where you are absolutely excluded from most things that, that most other adults enjoy. Um, so I do have a, a kind of unique prismatic perspective on life in a different way, maybe. Um, So, yes, I mean, in some ways, it's a privileged position to be able to stand back and look in at what other people are going through. But at the same time, Gabby, I mean, I'll I'll be honest with you, there is a, a big part of me that regrets not having had a family. And I am looking at, actively looking at fostering and adoption because there's a big part of me that's going, well, I'm, I'm 53, I'm, I'm still relatively young, I could still offer a child a very mm. loving and stable home. Mm. So it's possible to hold these two conflicting emotions at the same time, I think. And, it, and I, you kind of wrestle with this, hearing you talk there about the party situation, I feel, I feel really bad because I feel like, have I ever said anything again with somebody around like that? And then you, you know, and it's how you manage those situations. I think if you're aware of it, I, I think that's the first step, isn't it? To be aware that not everybody's in the same boat. And- a hundred percent. It might be um, helpful sometimes, I think, for people with families, with, with children and, you know, people who seem to have the perfect life, in inverted commas, it might be helpful for them perhaps sometimes to, to stop and wonder whether they've got a woman or a guy 
within that group that hasn't got their children and, and how that might feel for them. It, it is useful to, to, to be aware and to be sensitive towards other people's fertility issues or choices, for sure. And it yeah. does make your midlife experience quite different. We've had other people, obviously, on the podcast before who, who haven't got children. And, you know, your what, how midlife feels to you is different because, as you pointed out then, for a lot of people, it is the releasing of their children into the world. And suddenly they're kind of, you know, they're dealing with empty nests and all those kinds of things. You're thinking of starting that journey in midlife. I know. And, and that, I mean, do you know, it, it, it fills me with fear. And I'm... I'm conscious of the fact that, you know, I've got very good friends who are, as you say, releasing their kids to university. And I've sat back and thought about that and putting myself in their shoes and thinking, God, that must be such a period of grief. It must be so weird. I mean, our parents talked about it. And, you know, we never really understood, did we, when we were younger? We were like, what are you on about? But now I look at my friends who, who are saying goodbye to their firstborn at uni. And I think God, that must be such a loss in a way. I, I can I can understand how difficult that that transition might be. But at the same time, I'm going, oh, well, you know, perhaps I want to foster or adopt a child. Have I left it too late? Am I going to be that crazy woman at the school gates that's way too old for this? You know, are other women going to be looking at me going, why are you here? You know, so it does fill me with anxiety. I don't, I think now in 2023, or whenever you're listening to this podcast, I don't think it, you will be looked at like that because I feel like now there is such a diverse range of what a parent looks like, you know, whether it's two men together with a child, two women together with a child, a woman on her own, a man on their own, you know, mm -hmm. the ages, the average age of having a first child going up every year anyway. So I think if you're a kind, loving person, that's all society wants of parents, isn't it? You know, to be to be generous and kind and, and help guide that person through life. That's the best you can do. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I hosted um, a conference recently on, uh, it was called The Modern Family Show, and it was looking at, at the shape of modern families moving forward. And it was so fascinating because it, it's run by two gay dads uh, who are married and, and have had their own kids through um, surrogacy. Uh, and it was so interesting to look at, at all the people there and the different ways that they were trying to build their family, mm. whether it was through sur surrogacy, whether it was through IVF, um, whether it was through adoption or fostering or platonic co-parenting. This is a whole new mm. thing that people are looking into, which I had no idea about, that actually becoming a parent with a really good friend. So you're right to say that, you know, in, in 2023, it's perfectly possible to create that shape of, of a family in whichever way you want it to be. And we should embrace that. Absolutely. And and of course, the one thing you need is energy and vim and vigour and all those things. And you've got tons of that. You seem uh, like you really look after yourself. You look great and um, and you clearly have a lot of energy. What are, you, what are you doing in that department in terms of the exercise and lifestyle and how that's changed? Good point. I need to get some of your energy, actually. And, and uh, definitely I need to in increase the energy for sure. I mean, it, I have found the menopause has really hit me. Um, in terms of my energy reserves, I must admit. So I, I do get quite easily fatigued. I do try and look after myself as, as much as I can. Uh, so I do try and focus on exercising, not as often as you, but I'll try and, and exercise at least three times a week, being outside in fresh air, mm. walking for me. I've got a place in the Peak District. So being outside in the, in, in, in the fresh air walking is very, very important for me. I understand the emphasis on weight training, particularly for middle-aged women at, at the moment. So I've been looking a lot into that and thinking about changing 
my diet, because I'm vegetarian, so I'm, it's very sort of carb heavy, which, mm. which I know isn't good for us in, in middle age. I'm trying to, to focus on changing my diet to be much more protein focused. And that's a challenge at the moment. So I've been reading all about how Bear Grylls kind of sort of, you know, rips up animals off and all and sort of you know, eats everything. He was a and, vegan though before that, wasn't he? Yes, and he's <laughs> talked about how much better he feels. I mean, you look at that man's body, he's extraordinary. And he was talking to the papers recently about how he feeds all of his family, you know, the meat and the offal and all the rest of it, of, of an animal carcass. So I'm sort of trying to get my head around, do I, do I need to go that far given that I'm veggie? Or, you know, are there other ways that I could try and increase my protein and focus on, you know, building, building strength? I think the other thing about being at this age is the focus on trying not to, or, or to build your body in a way that you're not going to fall over in 20 years' time. Or if you do fall over, like my parents do all then the time. And you won't break. <laughs> you can actually, yeah, you can get up off the floor. Yeah. So, that, so that there's a there's a sort of reshifting, isn't there, when it comes mm. to exercise? But you know all about that. Yeah, f- future-proofing, making sure that, you, you, as you say, you're building the body that in your 70s and 80s, uh, you can still do things and look ahead to a fun later life. I think that's what this period seems to be, that resetting seems to be about, actually. It, it, it is a reset. I mean, we, we focus so much on being thin and particularly with the shows that I've done throughout my career, which are very, very body focused. And there's been such an emphasis and still is on trying to be slim, as slim as possible. And that's actually, especially in your middle age, not necessarily healthy. No, it's, healthy. Not, it's not, not necessarily healthy. And, and also it can actually age you a lot if you're too thin, mm. I think. And it's having muscle and good bone density, I think, is probably the two key things that we need to think about. But also keeping the cardio going as well yeah. and and the strength so I, I, I think I think you're right there's certainly a focus on trying to be trying to have a healthy body mm. rather than trying to have a, a thin body let's talk about this career of yours as you brought it up in terms of you have had a lot of uh, body and kind of sex related shows have been across your your uh, roster let's say um, <laughs> of course naked education naked attraction when did that first because obviously you are the go-to person right because people go well Anna Richardson she's got very liberal very she's very relaxed We're talking about sex and sexuality she's the one to go to but was it always that way well Yes and no. I mean, I've got quite an interesting career in that I've done every side of the camera. So I started off in production, uh, started off on on Big Breakfast as a researcher on that uh, with the greats, Chris Evans and Gabby Roslin. And then I flip-flopped in front of the camera purely by fluke and then came back behind the camera to, to run development, actually, which is when you come up with all the formats that we then see on, on TV, which I love doing that creative process of deciding what shows people are going to end up watching. Um, And I I guess the first big show that I developed was You Are What You Eat with Gillian McKeith. So we're talking probably 20 years ago now. So I suppose that sort of, you know, put the stake in the ground in terms of my interest in bodies, nutrition, health, um, and also quite taboo subjects. Because if Mm. you remember, Gillian was just obsessed with looking at people's poo. So in a way, I guess that probably started that that interest. And then I just sort of got associated with, um, yeah, with, 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 with bodies, 
and it's just it's like a sort of snowball it just it just gathers moss and you know continues and, and your, your brilliant style of presenting on Naked Attraction anybody who didn't know anything about your previous life or you know, they, you know an alien who just come down to watch that show would think this is a woman who is incredibly relaxed with you know bodies nudity sex and I wonder if it was always thus you know were you that, that kind of child that kind of yes, teenager yes um, I mean funny enough you and I touched on this um, last week when, when you popped on to the podcast that, that I was doing but I grew up in a vicarage my father is a priest my mother's an RE teacher so as a little girl the I natural, was, they are the natural producers of somebody who presents naked attraction I mean <laughs> well <it's, laughs> the thing is you, you say that yes they are yes they are because think about what a what a priest what a vicar does you know they are in the pulpit and they are broadcasting to a community to an audience um, so I learned a lot of my skills from my dad in terms of being at ease in front of an audience. And then in, in, in and the same with the teacher, you know, you do the same thing. You're broadcasting in front of a, of a classroom. Oh yeah, I get that, but it's the sex bit though. Uh, well, okay. So <laughs> the vicarage was very, very open. Hmm. So we would have all kinds of people coming through the door every day, you know, whether it was a bishop or a beggar. And I think maybe the sex thing was because... It was a very tightly controlled environment. You're talking about the church here. I think I had that natural rebellion in me, which was, okay, you know, if we're not going to talk about these taboo topics, then I'm going to be, I'm the only girl in the family. I'm going to be the one that's going to buck that trend. And I'm not afraid to discuss this. And because I think that there was something about being brought up in the 70s and the 80s, especially in a very patriarchal you know, church environment that you shouldn't talk about that. Girls don't talk about this. So I think I probably just thought, well, F you, I'm going to do what I want. Because they'd given you that example of confidence and communication anyway. So it's kind of their fault for making you so open. And, and then you go, right, well, now I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about. And they're going, oh, hang on. <laughs> That's what I like to remind them. It's your fault. Yeah. But you know what? It's so funny, isn't it? That parents... I love my parents, but it's really interesting how parents take the credit for all of your successes. So I saw them recently and said, oh, you know, um, I've just, I don't know, I've just been put up for an award or there's, there's a piece in the papers about me this weekend. And both of them sat there and went, didn't we do a good job? Didn't we do a good job to each other? That's like, all about us. <laughs> yeah, but the rest, the best is when kind of parents, they then kind of somehow uh, repel or um, disown the, the negatives, you know, the things that aren't them, you know. So, um, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't, I didn't give you that, actually. That's not yeah. from me. That's from your they father. They want the glory. Don't they absolutely yeah. want the glory. And then they don't want anything to do with the negative size of your personality, for sure. Um, so those, those kinds of, of shows, which are a lot more prevalent, I'd say, in the last 10, 15 years than they were on our screens, because everything's a little bit more open, isn't it? We wouldn't have seen those kinds of shows probably in the 1970s and 80s. Do you think they've changed our society? Have we got a better attitude towards sex, do you think, because of that openness? Um, what shows like Naked Attraction? Mm, that's really interesting, actually, Gabby. I, I think it's a confluence, if you think about it, that in a way we're reflecting back, we're holding a mirror up to society and at the same time that influence influences society, I think. I think more than anything, probably pornography and social media has has had an effect on the kinds of shows that, that we're producing and how comfortable people are talking about sex. So, and, so and the access to pornography is greater and easier than it ever has been because of social media. And you think therefore then people's appetite for those kinds of programmes 
is greater or they they just expect to see more of that kind of thing? I mean, think about it. You know, pornography is just accessible on every single device. We've then got the the proliferation of, of social media where also you can access pornography, you know, whenever you want. And we're broadcasting our own pornography. So I just think that in that that sea of acceptance around sex and bodies, that uh, people are very, very comfortable more than ever, I think, talking about sex or experiencing sex. So I think we're just, with naked attraction or naked education, just reflecting back what's going on in society. And that's not necessarily a good thing, mm. by the way. And no. I'm very proud of the fact that that I'm part of that conversation of acceptance but it does worry me. A few years ago, I did um, something called uh, Sex Education versus Pornography. And this was about 15 years ago where we were talking about the, um, you know, the proliferation of, of pornography and how it's affecting kids at school and, you know, how it's not monitored, how this is a bad thing. And here we are 15 years later with exactly the same thing going on, exactly the same conversation. So it's not necessarily a good thing. No. And um, and I know, you know, a lot of people I know with young younger children say kind of a 12 13 14 getting their first phones and then they have access to to all kinds of content even if you put blocks on it obviously somebody can send them something on snapchat or whatsapp and they can see things and that kind of um almost being anesthetized to things that we would be horrified that young people were seeing and I, I just find that so worrying you know do you know I don't know that they are Anesthetized. I think that they are hugely affected by seeing the very violent uh, images that that are available. I suppose that was and, the wrong word. Maybe what I mean is that it becomes so normal for them yeah. to see those things. Yes, it's it's normalised. You're right, but I think the effect that it has on uh, young psychology is is deeply, deeply troubling. I think I read a stat somewhere the other day that. Kids now, the average age of kids being able to get hold of porn is, is something ridiculous, like nine years old. And, and you know, it, it is a real concern. And then, of course, we're breeding a whole generation of boys who think it's perfectly normal to want to choke a girl when they're having They think that that's, that's what loving sex is. So, you know, we, we've got a generation coming up behind us of, um, uh, of kids with a very dysfunctional view of what healthy sex and relationships look like, looks like. So it's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? On the one hand, that you can have a show like Naked Attraction where, you know, you're revealing people's genitals, you know, as the curtain moves up and you'd feel like, oh, well, that's a very liberal society with, you know, health, mm. healthy approach to their bodies. And then on the other hand, as you say, this really distorted idea of what sexual relationships are for young people who are being exposed to pornography. Yes, but, but, but you're right. Although the difference with Naked Attraction, and I defend Naked Attraction, you know, to the hilt, because there's nothing pornographic about Naked Attraction. There's nothing sexy about it. There's nothing pornographic. No one's got to tune in and think, oh, this is really sexy. Not at all. It, it's funny, number one. It's a game, number two. But when you go below both of those layers, it's actually about acceptance and it's about education. So I'm very proud of the fact that we reveal nakedness in all its forms. You never see uh, this sort of sea of people with perfect bodies. We reflect people with perfectly ordinary, average, normal bodies. And we talk about um, uh, the differences in those bodies and what people like and what they don't like. And there's nothing sexy about it at all. It's really about saying, this is what I look like with my kit off love me and accept me. So 
I'm deeply proud of the fact that with some of the contribs that we've had on there, we've got people with with disabilities, we've got trans people mm-hmm. who are going through their journey, we've had people on there who are HIV positive. You know, it's a whole reflection of society. That's what I mean there in terms of the paradox, because that is a very, you know, as you say, accepting. And then on the other hand, feels like we still haven't kind of worked out as a society how to have honest conversations about sex and healthy conversations? A hundred percent. And to this day, I have sort of various punch-ups with, with people in television when I, when I bring this, this topic up. But to this day, I've never watched a single episode of Love Island. Because no, for me, Love, Love Island is, you know, uh, I find it troubling and it is the antithesis, in a sense, of what we're trying to do on, on Naked Attraction. So, you know, for me, this is about uh, perfection, it's about betrayal. It's about youth. It's it's about people trying to you know manipulate and manoeuvre their way into getting what they want. So uh, yeah, I I worry more about formats like that um, in terms of educating younger mm. people because I, I think it's it's giving some really it's totally ropey, unrealistic, <laughs> really people's morals and ethics. Yeah, and and it's just not. It's not real at all, is it, in terms of what, you know, what relationships end up being about and how, although is it, is it that now the reality for young people that they're, you know, you see it all the time, don't you, when pe- people are kind of catfishing almost, how they're projecting yeah. themselves on their social media and what they're able to create, which is not like the reality. And then they must, that must affect your self-esteem, you know, as a person, must not it? Of, of, totally. So there is something about with, with the programme that we do, it, there's something about getting real, you know, that, that if you are working in, in television and you're on TV, and especially if you've got a, a good producer's brain or you understand how, you know, formats work, I think there is a degree of responsibility in terms of trying, especially for, for young people watching, trying to educate or inform as best a way you can. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And it also leans into a little bit your work away from telly in terms mm. of mental health and dealing with anxiety, uh, mind box, and your qualification as a cognitive hypnotherapist. Um, yeah, I know it's difficult to say, isn't yeah. it? Um, and you, you went into that area because of your own experiences. Yeah. With the view to working in that space full time, was that the initial idea? Um, it's a good hat to be able to wear and in terms of being able to have an alternative career, should I wish to have one, mm. or to juggle both in a way. So, um, I mean, I guess with a lot of the, the shows I've done in television, they've always had that sort of helping 
element to them, mm-hmm. uh, or there's a transformational element. Mm-hmm. So I think my interest in mental health is is part and parcel of that. And again, the way that I was brought up in a vicarage, it's about helping other people. So it's kind of in my DNA. Um, but yeah, I, I do wear a, a therapy hat with a view to possibly in later life, having my own practice or wanting to expand that um, in some way. So I've, I've qualified as a cognitive hypnotherapist. I have an online platform called Mindbox, which um, helps people with anxiety and depression. Um, and I'm, I'm qualifying at the moment in my uh, counselling uh, qualifications. So I'm just starting to do that as well, which is which is a challenge, learning again in midlife. But yeah, no, I'm very interested in mental health. Tell us about the challenge of learning again, because we talk about it a lot and it probably sounds a lot easier than it is saying, sign up, do a course, challenge yourself, push yourself. <laughs> and we do say that, don't we? Whether, whether it's physically or mentally, we do say to people, yeah, you know, don't be afraid, just challenge yourself, as you say. So I've signed up to do my, my qualification. And I suppose we all, well, many of us will start with that arrogance, I suppose, of going, I've got a degree, I've got a post-grad, I've done my qualification in cog here, but I know what I'm doing, this is easy, I can do this. So I've signed up and suddenly I'm like, Christ, this is really hard. It's really, really difficult to sort of take yourself back to your university years and remember how you write essays or uh, how you reference things and, you know, doing all of that academic reading. It's actually really difficult. So all this morning I spent hours reading up and trying to answer some questions. And uh, it, it is a challenge, but essential in terms of, you know, in keeping your brain healthy, expanding your horizons. I love learning. Maybe it's because my mum's a teacher, but I love learning. So I'll do it for the rest of my life. For sure. Have you found that you are kind of able to, have you got the kind of focus to do a two, three hour stint or have you, are you working in 45 minute chunks? You know, if somebody's listening to this and they're experiencing similar problems getting going, what would you, what would you recommend? I think you just you just have to do it. And as one of my old teachers said, you've got to approach the elephant one bite at a time. So, you know, you've got this huge thing in front of you. You just have to sit down, focus and start biting at the elephant. Um, I don't tend to do very short little chunks. I know that my ex, Sue Perkins, is, it always talks about how she will sit and write for 20 minutes and then she's distracted and she needs to go and do something else for 20 minutes. I can focus for about two or three hours and I like to really get very, very involved in it and then leave it. Um, so that's just how I choose mm. to learn and that, that's, that's how I choose to And you to test learn. yourself later to make sure it's gone in or when you go back to it the next time, do you? Well, it's funny that you should say that because about three or four years ago, I did a show for Channel 4 called Can I Improve My Memory? And so I was a contestant on this sort of memory challenge show, which I absolutely, absolutely loved and I learned some techniques with a with a a, a sort of brain guy in terms of retaining information so um when it comes to doing this counseling qualification no I'm, I'm kind of focused on just getting the answers right but I do know how what what techniques I need to use if I did need to anything you remember. can share yeah there's something called the memory palace where if you've got to remember like huge swathes of text, for example, if you're doing a speech, then attach small chunks of that text to different objects around your room, if that makes sense. So that you would start, if you came into your room and you attach the first intro, say, to the lamp in the corner, and then you'd attach the next paragraph to the chandelier on the ceiling. And they're just visual cues in order to help your brain 
to break up the text and to, to memorize things more easily. So it's called the Memory Palace. It really, really, really works. And I, I mean, I loved doing that show. I absolutely loved it. I got through to the semi-finals. I was delighted. Um, but memory is one of the, as you know, you know, one of the things brain fog that midlife uh, women yeah. uh, obviously know that they're in perimenopause because that's one of the, or it can be one of the reasons they know they're in it because of the, of the symptoms that uh, we, we find ourselves struggling to remember names or struggling to remember uh, that word. What is it again? Oh, book. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and that, you know, can be very frustrating, especially if you've had a really elastic kind of, you know, mind and a really good memory or you've been able to kind of, you know, um, reel off text and things like that. So um, I think any of those kind of tips are very, very good. Um, I don't want to go into detail massively about the Schwarzenegger stuff, but it did mm-hmm. occur to me. It was interesting because I've heard you talk about, um, brilliantly talk about it a lot, the legal action that you were involved in with uh, him and his aides and um, which you then received damages for defamation. And it struck me, you said, I think afterwards that you felt you were blacklisted for a while from telly. Oh, and yeah. I've struck me that that was in the kind of 2004, 2005 period, I think, wasn't it? So we're coming up to almost 20 years ago. And I feel like we have progressed because I feel like that wouldn't happen. You wouldn't be blacklisted now. And I say that because of what's happened with Catherine Ryan talking openly about somebody in her industry who she describes as a, a dangerous comedian um, in terms of his behaviour with women. And I feel like she is not being blacklisted when she's mm. talked about this rightly. And you did receive mm. treatment that was negative to your career and, and hampered your progress. And in many ways, you know, it makes you even, I look back and think you were so brave to do that because actually you did it in a, in a climate that wasn't ready to have honest conversations. Do you feel we've moved on? And is that, am I, am I maybe clutching at straws with that example that we no, have moved on in terms of the openness of those conversations? It's really interesting that, that you mentioned that because with everything that's come, come out recently about various other sort of, you know, accusations and all the rest of it, I feel as though we're no further forward than we were 20 years ago. I, you know, we're, we're still experiencing this, this Me Too movement that we experienced 20 years ago, um, nothing really has changed other than perhaps you're right that perhaps there's a, a slightly more warm reception if, if women come forward and sort of do the jacques. Although I still feel that behind closed doors, any woman that comes forward and is has the courage to speak out She's always going to be tarred as being difficult or a troublemaker. And people people may say that that you're not going to be blacklisted. But mm-hmm. I think that, you know, shit sticks. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure how no. much further forward. And maybe because she's not obviously naming names, but maybe yeah. because her career is so established, you know, she she's perhaps reached a point where she feels she can't be. Um, pulled back from you know the levels of size of arenas that she's you know she does her yeah. comedy to and all all of that but yeah that's depressing then isn't it if, yeah I if mean, we haven't I, moved I think, on in 20 years a, we are having more of a conversation but I'm just not sure I think that we're still very very nervous about naming people who have behaved who've behaved badly I, I think that we want to talk about it but I think that a lot of women are too afraid to still and at the time back when you did speak up, did you feel you were in a place where it was going to be okay to speak up? Or did you Absolutely know? Absolutely not. Yeah. 
No, right. So you knew there was going to be risk in doing that. Absolutely. But I felt completely... I mean, you've got to bear in mind that I was effectively taking on one of the biggest stars in Hollywood and his machine. Um, So I was really, really anxious and and worried about the whole thing. Um, And I wasn't sure where it was going to go at all, but I just felt compelled to speak my truth and to be able to say, no, this, this happened. This happened. You can't just pretend that it didn't or that I'm a liar uh, or I've made this up. So for me, that kind of justice is, is extremely important. And it's, it's extremely important that women are vocal about uh, any kind of um, injustice like that. For, absolutely. But I wasn't, I wasn't sure that we were going to settle or that it was going to go my way. It was a very, very anxious time. It took me three oh, years. to. It must settle. have been really stressful. It was horrific. I mean, fortunately, I, I had a sort of ace legal team, which included David Sherborne, who, of course, has gone on, you know, to represent Harry and Meghan. And he did the Wagatha Christie case. And, you know, he's you know, right up there now. Um, so he was an amazing, an amazing barrister. And, uh, you know, so I had a really, really good legal team. So I felt very secure with them. But in terms of, I guess, my employment and society, I, I wasn't I wasn't confident at all that everything was going to be okay. And for a long time, I was signing on in Kilburn. I mean, I, I lost my job in television. And I was literally going to the job centre and signing on and going, you know, have you got any work? I work in broadcasting. I know that's not going to be on the boards. But, you know, can I just pick up my, can I just pick up my, my income support? So it was bad. It's a, a saying, obviously, that's well trod. But does it feel like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? When you look back now, do you feel like it, it gave you an armory and a fortitude that you wouldn't have otherwise had? I think I've always had the armory and the fortitude. I've always been quite unafraid to speak truth to power. And that has uh, got me into an awful lot of trouble. I, I refer you back to the fact that if you are a woman and you're a bit of a gobshite and you're prepared to say, actually, no, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. then you will be labeled as being difficult or a troublemaker, whereas guys will be kind of like heralded as, God, they're so amazing, aren't they? They're such a sort of, you know, maverick. Um, So I've always been unafraid to do that. But it's been a difficult, it's a difficult journey to to be able to, yeah, to, to speak truth to power and to survive in this business. But then I think you're an inspiration as well. So don't forget that, you know, that people, a lot of women will have taken great strength from that. And I'm sure people have told you that, you know, and told you their own personal experiences. And I yeah. hope that has given you some, if not comfort, some sense that you did the right thing. I, oh, with, without question, I know I did the right thing. And if it inspires or has inspired anybody, then my job's done. I will always say to people that that have experienced any kind of injustice that, you know, you have to fight this. You, you've got to be able to have your right to reply and answer it. So, yeah, I'll always be a gobshite. <laughs> I think that's the wrong wrong expression for what you are. I think that sounds that sounds like you're you're speaking a load of nonsense. But you you speak you speak as you say, truth to power, and you do it eloquently, and people listen. That's the thing as well, because you you have a platform, don't you, which you use brilliantly. I want to talk a little bit about something much more shallow: visual uh, appearance of aging, and uh, and how you kind of you look great. Your hair looks shiny and oh, glossy. Yeah. Your skin looks lovely. So you, you're obviously you are looking after yourself well. Yes. So I mean, again, you must know this as well. You're on TV, so it's important for me to want to try 
and look my best. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do do a lot in terms of looking after my skin, um, in terms of looking after my hair as well. Obviously, I mean, I'm completely white. If I let my if I let my roots grow out, then, you know, it would just be horrific. I'd look like Santa. But um, <laughs> no, I do look after my skin, look after my, my hair for sure. And I, I, for me, it's important. Mm. I completely understand why there are plenty. I've got mates who are like, oh, for God's sake, stop doing the Botox, stop dyeing your hair. For me, it's just part of who I am. I think it's also, I think like you say, when you work in telly, it's not so much that you feel like you want to look younger or you're worried about kind of, you know, people coming up through the industry. I've always felt, and even I felt this in my 20s and 30s, that I'm going into somebody's living room and I want to, you know, put my, my best shoes on, my best frock and make sure they feel like I've dressed up for them or I've, you know, made an effort for them. I don't like I'm just about to empty the dishwasher. That's kind of what my motivation has always been to, to look yeah. the best I can, really. That's a really, really lovely way of describing it. You're absolutely right that if you were going around to somebody's for dinner, then you want to look your best. So, yeah, that's... You're I, kind of I'm, paying them respect, aren't you? In that, I respect. completely agree with you on that. I think it's just, it's showing yourself respect. And I think it's showing up other people that you also, you, you do care about the job that you do. Yeah, And as you say, not everybody feels the same way, but I also feel better. It makes me feel better. Yeah. And I don't think it's vanity. I think it's about just trying to feel the best that you can when you when you, you know, open that door and you go out into a difficult world. Totally. And- I, I, it's, it's a form of self-care, isn't it? Mm. It's a form of sort of self, self-soothing, self-care is to, if you look well on the, on the outside, then you're showing that you respect yourself, I think. And as somebody who I don't think is going to disagree with us is beauty expert extraordinaire Nadine Baggett, who is our expert today. I know you two have a, a long-standing relationship, a mutual appreciation uh, of each other. You've worked together in the past. Uh, say hello. Hello, Nadine. I've not seen you for ages. It's so good to see you. And can I say, I mean, skin like porcelain, you look like a statue. I can't believe it's been 10 years, Anna. I really I can't know. believe it. It's gone so quickly. Always great to have you on The Midpoint. I gave you a little bit of homework ahead of today. You did. Uh, as usual, it's always kind of self-serving because I always think, what would I? What do I need at the moment? I thought neck. Neck is the thing that I'm, especially when you start wearing your polar necks again and you notice a little bit of skin that's just sticking. No, that one's a kind of nice baggy one. But you know when you wear a slightly tighter one, you think, what's going on here then with the neck? So I was, mm. I was wondering to myself, are neck creams really worth it? That is what I was thinking, Nadine. And and then we can apply that to also kind of under the eye and various other areas that they decide they want to manufacture new creams for. But let's start with the neck and the décolletage. So I wrote a piece for The Times recently and it was sort of my 36 all-time favourite products. And I got to number 13 and I said, uh, best ever neck cream. Just kidding, you don't need one. There is no reason why you would use a separate product on your neck because why is the skin under your neck any different than the skin on the rest of your face? So I think neck creams are a marketing con, but that doesn't mean to say you shouldn't look after your neck. And if I could say one thing to my younger self that's really superficial is take your SPF right the way down onto your chest Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. this will age differently to this Mm. because we tend to forget this. We tend to put our makeup and our skincare and our SPF down to here and then we forget our neck and chest. Down to the jawline. Uh, Down to the jawline yeah. and then we forget the rest of it. So the, so the moisturiser that 
that we're using on our face, you think quite, quite happily, just take that all down. Everything, everything. You don't need a specific formulation. So every single thing you put on your face needs to go right down almost to the nipples. It really does. Anywhere that is exposed. And they could be anywhere, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) We've been through the menopause. We could be down to our ankles by the time we finish moisturising. So so that's the neck. Are there any areas of the face or uh, the upper body that you would say need a special cream I or, have, or formula? I would say I say 90% of the time an eye cream is not needed at all because, and the thing that changed in terms of cosmetic formulations to change that is the introduction of serums because the minute we introduced serums, which essentially 20 years ago, we wouldn't know what they were, but now everybody tends to use a serum. Most serums can be used up around the eyes. You just can't use a heavy moisturiser around your eyes. I say there are probably a couple of ingredients that you would use around your eye that you wouldn't wear anywhere else. And that's caffeine. If you do any early morning TV or you've had a late night, caffeine can help boost circulation and it can help Caffeine creams. Yeah, caffeine eye creams. You don't have to spend a lot of money on them. Uh, The Inky List do one, Charlotte Tilbury does one. Everybody tends to do one nowadays. They just have this ability to sort of constrict the blood vessels and put the lymph back out. So they they basically get rid of morning So it's a short term... It's a short, it's always a short term fix, Mm. always a short term fix. But do you know the number one question I get asked probably post menopause is what can I do with my neck? It's that moment here. You just do that thing where you pull the back of your jaw up to see what you'd look like if you had a facelift. And we've all done it. Look, we're literally all three of us are doing it. Do it 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 when you're in the traffic lights, don't you, in the car? Sometimes you just have a little. Especially especially if you're in a hotel and lit from above and you suddenly think, what on earth has happened to me? I've aged overnight. Gabby's got a really very tight jawline. jawline, You've got a great jawline. That was the question I was going to ask you, Nadine, because mine, it's the jab, mine's just gone. I used to be like that. And now look at that. What can you do? It's, it's, I hate to say this, Anna, but it is inevitable. And I'm 10 years older than both of you, but it is that moment. Now, you see the shape of Gabby's face. She's got a quite a large, firm jaw. And that age is better than a slimmer face. You've got a sweet little heart face. And it does tend to age more around mm. here. I'm telling you, there is not a treatment or a product alive. It's the reason that Madonna's gone under the knife. Uh, it, it, it just is. It's not a secret. I'm sorry, but, you know, she might deny it. But if you see any actress or public figure in the public eye and they've got a Gabby jawline and they're older than Gabby, the chances are they've gone under the knife. So to get that, you're essentially having to take, and here I'm doing the classic what two about, fingers like, on the What about facial massage, like the Euphrasia no. stuff, just keep doing that? No, no. no. So that will help puffiness and it will help blood flow but the sagging of the face is actually caused by some fundamentally basic physiological changes that go on when you go through the menopause not only do you use collagen and elastin that we all know about so the skin loses its elasticity elasticity but the the skull shrinks your face actually shrinks your cheekbones shrink your jaw shrink now Anna, you were talking about earlier on about future proofing and how one day if you fall over you do not want to break a bone. Well, you do lose bone density as you get older and it tends to be hormone driven and faces tend to shrink. So you use lose bone mass. And if you lose bone mass, the skin ends up being a size too large. So basically your scaffolding mm-hmm. is getting yes. smaller. It's exactly you, what it but, is, but your But your um, soft furnishings yes. <laughs> are the same. <laughs> so yes, imagine like you've a, got a sofa. Lovely, you've got a lovely duvet, but you need a new mattress. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what? I mean, Anna 
either. I didn't expect it to take a turn like it has. I was hoping we were going to be told about a magic neck cream. We'd all go off Sadly skipping into this. And now we're being told our skulls are shrinking. I mean, it's... <laughs> It's not I a... hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's very interesting. If you look at the way men age, mm. it tends to be a slow, steady decline because, because the there are no hormonal fluctuations. Mm. Women tend to age at certain key points in their life. And it tends to be when you have a child, when you're very young and you've been through a hormonal roller coaster of having a baby and you're sleep deprived. And then the next big leap is the menopause and it's not the perimenopause it's the 10 years from 50 to 60. Oh, God. Sorry ladies. <laughs> so now, oh, what, what do you do? Are you on HRT number Absolutely. one? Absolutely. I started my, my YouTube channel when I was 54. I remember chatting to Gabby about this. There's no way I would have been doing that and you are thinking about entering a new life phase at around your early four, 50s. So you would not even be considering, I suspect, fostering or adopting if you weren't on HRT because mm. HRT is, for me, it was a life changer for me mm. when I went through my early 50s and I suddenly realised that I was at the peak of my career. I didn't want to lose it. I was on television and I was working for The Times and having this incredibly energetic life, I needed to be on HRT. I couldn't be up 12 times a night having hot flushes. I just couldn't. Nadine, what are you? I mean, I, I read your column every week in the the Times, or every time that you write it, anyway, in the Times, and and you know, I know you recommend great products for a range of different things and ages. You know, you're not just writing to the menopausal or midlife woman. Um, what's the most exciting thing that you've come across in the last month or so? Uh, oh, very good question. Probably the most exciting ingredient for all of us who are going through either perimenopause or menopause is the next generation retinol, which is called retinal. And what it is, is so retinol is a vitamin A. Your skin uses it. It's, it's a gold standard. You can get it on prescription for um, acne and for sun damage and things like that. Now, available over the counter is, is a, a molecule called retinol, but your body, your skin has to convert it and it has to convert it two stages so it can become retinoic acid, which is the active form. Retinol is only one stage of conversion, so it's less irritating and more potent and it's becoming available on the high street. And traditionally, you would have had to pay hundreds of pounds for it. Now it's available and it's beginning to trickle down on the high street. That's very exciting. Guess what we'll be Googling as soon as we say <laughs> goodbye on this podcast. I can say two things. So traditionally, it was Medicaid and it was super high and very expensive but now Aven and a company called Geek and Gorgeous do it and that's at three different price points Geek and Gorgeous is high street Aven is middle and Medicaid is high end well there you go and we'll make sure that we put all that information in the description of this episode because what happens when Nadine's on Anna is that I get loads of people DMing me going <laughs> what did she say and I can like, go back and listen to her again listen, I don't um, yeah. know <laughs> we'll make sure we write it all down uh, Nadine as always absolutely gorgeous to have you on and thank you for being a ray of beauty sunshine and also a role model I think for all of us in terms of uh, the next 8-10 years she looks marvellous doesn't she I can I just say my absolute pleasure and Anna you were absolutely fascinating I loved every second of this you oh. are truly an inspiration Isn't for she? all of us you are that is very very kind Nadine it's so good to see you lots of love bye Oh, it's lovely when I bring an expert on who's been on the podcast before and you know each other. That was that was great to reunite you. It's so good to see her. I can't believe that she's 10 years older than we are. I know. She looks she amazing, looks doesn't she? extraordinary. I mean, she does spend her days trying out beauty products for all of us. So that's, I mean, there has to be some payback for that, that doesn't That is it? true. I mean, if she looked awful, then clearly... <laughs> 
I know the columns. What what are these things you're writing about? I know she's great, Nadine, and she's no nonsense. And I always feel as well that she's not aligned to one brand. You know, she kind of she's really fair as well. So, um, so Anna, there's lots of exciting stuff coming up for you on the horizon in terms of what you're doing in terms of your study, and you know, you've got this inquisitive mind, which I think we don't always appreciate is one of the most important things in terms of successful aging. You know, if you look at the blue zones, it's all about inquisitiveness and keeping yourself active mentally as well, whether that's formal learning like you're doing or just being interested in life. And that is something that shines through you. Well, thank you. I mean, yeah, I am interested. I'm interested in people. I'm interested in, in, in life. I'm interested in learning. I love my job as a broadcaster because the privilege is that we get to meet different people every single day. My podcast, I get to meet different people. And I talk love about being problems. on your podcast. It's very, yeah. very interesting. I love the format. They're great, aren't they, podcasts? Mm. I really enjoy doing that. So it can't just be me. It keeps me interested. Um, I'm also on Steph's Pat Lunch every week doing their, their agony and relationship well, I was going to say to you earlier on, I think you need your own show as an agony aunt because I'm feeling like all of this cognitive hypnotherapy and your counselling and all your experiences make you absolutely perfect as an agony aunt. It would aunt. be fun. It would yeah. be fun, wouldn't it? I mean, that, that, would, be, that would be the dream. There that is a gap the in the market, I feel. Like we, haven't, so. we haven't had that national treasure of an agony ant for a while now. There's Denise, obviously, on this Denise morning. Robertson. Yeah, and that's one we probably grew. We probably grew up with Denise. But there were you know, various TV iterations. But I feel like we're, we're missing somebody. And Anna, I think yeah. that's you. That would be amazing. That's the dream. Let's put it out there. Yeah, manifest that's, it. That's what we need. We need to manifest a, a good old-fashioned daytime agony show. People have got a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> Including us, absolutely. <laughs> First absolutely. letter from me. Um, Anna, <laughs> thank you so, so much for coming on, being so open and brilliant and best of luck with all the things you're doing. And do come back and let us know if anything happens regarding the fostering and adopting, because I, I think a lot of people listening as well will be interested in that journey and how challenging it is at this age and whether yeah. it poses extra challenges. Yeah. Gabby, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I'm always conscious of the fact when you talk about yourself, I'm always conscious of, is this really boring? So I I do hope if anybody is listening and anything's resonated, I, I would love to know and I'd love to hear. Well, Anna is anything but boring. I think you'll agree. And thank you to her for bringing her usual honesty and wit to our chat. And I do take my hat off to her for going back to study in midlife and being so honest about the challenges that she's facing there. And Nadine is a fountain of knowledge. You can visit Nadine Baggett's YouTube channel for more, as she puts it, beauty without the BS. Do hit follow wherever you listen to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Thanks again to Anna and Nadine, to Spiritland Productions and to you for keeping me company. I hope you can join me next week. Bye-bye for now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.